The title of today's talk is Mindful Living for a Meaningful Life. When I was conducting a retreat in Mitraville, that's in Sabah, Kundasan, a mass retreat, Mindful Awareness and Serenity Retreat. That was back in earlier this year. And then there was one Christian lady from Kuching who joined our retreat. And I asked her why she, being a Christian, she would come for such a retreat. And she said that it's because one of her colleagues who had attended a previous retreat of mine, recommended her to come. And she also said that although she was now a Christian, because she was married to a Christian, she had very strong Taoist Buddhist roots. And for many years, she has been questioning, what is the meaning of life? What, why am I here for? What am I supposed to do? She had this question in her mind, but because of uh, family obligations and uh, career, she just swept them under the carpet. These questions kept on surfacing, and so now I think she is in a better position to pursue such questions, probably because her career is more stable now and her children are grown up. And that makes me wonder whether people here have such questions before arising in your mind. I think that it is something quite universal. It happened to me when I was young and I pursued it until I became a monk. Whereas for most of you, you just step it under the carpet. And then you got married and fell into a booby trap. And now it's, you can't get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that my sister, my elder sister, she was a very ambitious woman. I mean, when I go, she was a top student and chasing after all these credentials. She also said that when she was young, she used to have such thoughts. But when you want to get on with life, you just couldn't have time to think about such things, you just sweep them under the carpet and you go and pursue your studies, pursue your sports, pursue your career and get absorbed into making a living or doing whatever you are interested in. But then, for some people, even though they have met with a lot of successes in their lives, Maybe they become wealthy and rich and prosperous, but still they find that there's something missing. That's an emptiness in their success and the material luxury and comfort. I mean, if you are someone who has a spirit of inquiry within you, I'm sure that you would question this 
But I guess it really depends on different people are at different levels of spiritual maturity. Some of them are already ready. There's this very popular so-called New Age term that talks about old souls. I mean, the word soul may be something taboo to Buddhism, but if you understand the soul not as a permanent and changing entity, but as something that evolves through the age, through lifetimes, I mean, it's still very much in line with Buddhist teachings. Because the Buddha himself, you could say he's an old soul, because through many lifetimes he had done a lot of things, According to commentaries, he spent aeons trying to perfect his paramis in order to become a Samasam Buddha. So you could say he's also, in the past lives, is a soul in the sense that it's an evolving being, not in the sense of an unchanging permanent entity. So coming back to this spiritual maturity, not all of us are at the same level. Yeah, Some of us can become sensitive to this question of the meaning of life when we are very young and uh, we can pursue it with passion and intensity. Well, some of others, unfortunately, although we may have such lofty questions arising in us, we are hijacked by our hormones, unfortunately. I mean, that's part of human psychological development. That's the problem of being human. You are human, you come in as a male or a female, and you grow up puberty to adolescence, you are bombarded, you are attacked by the hormones, you are the slave of your hormones, you are going after all these things because of the body, because you have this body. And if you don't have enough spiritual maturity, then of course you will succumb to these hormones. And by the time it's too late, you realize that you're married, you've got children, and once you have children, it's life imprisonment. (laughs) It's life imprisonment, an obligation that you have to fulfill until your child becomes independent. Unfortunately, there are some parents who have autistic children or children who are mentally or physically handicapped and that's really a life imprisonment. But then when you look at it from another point of view, from our Buddhist point of view, it's all the workings of karma. It's probably something you owe to that someone. It's something which we Buddhists believe in, but we cannot really verify ourselves unless you really have very strong meditation and uh, psychic powers to be able to access your past lives. Anyway, seeing that there are so many people coming to listen to this talk, I'm sure that this idea of this question of having a meaningful life would be in your minds, and that's why you're here to listen to the talk. And to find meaning in life, first of all, you have to be mindful. You have to know who you are and why you are doing things. Okay, so since this talk is about mindfulness, let me 
explain what mindfulness means to you. I'm sure that many of you have heard of mindfulness. Mindfulness is now so prevalent in the world. It's sweeping the world like, you could say, nobody's business. Mindfulness is used nowadays in practically all aspects of human endeavor, ranging from spiritual practices to psychotherapy to stress management to education, sports, in the corporate world, and even in the U.S. Army. So it's pervading the whole world. In fact, I think it was last year that I think the U.K. politicians, all of them, opposition as well as the government, the party in power, all of them agreed to the idea of that year being a year of mindfulness. So mindfulness is so playing a part in politics. And most of these people who find mindfulness so effective actually understand it to mean present moment awareness. Coming back to the present moment. Being with the present moment. However, from the Buddhist point of view, being in the present moment is only one part of sati, of mindfulness. The word mindfulness is an English translation of the Pali word sati, as you can see there, sati in a triangle. And sati is the noun of a verb called sarati. Sarati means to remember. So sarati is a verb, and then when you make it into a noun, it becomes remembrance. So how come remembrance is now translated as mindfulness? I guess that's a question that I cannot answer because this was done many, many years ago by, I think, Rhys Davis, one of the earliest Pali-English translators. So they translated sati as mindfulness. In the English language, Mindfulness means to be careful. You can say, be mindful. The floor is wet, the pavement is wet, be careful, you might slip. And so, be mindful is actually sort of equivalent to being careful. Because of the popularity of mindfulness in the past half a century or so, mindfulness has come to get a new meaning. It means to be aware of the present moment. And some of these teachers in the West of mindfulness, those particularly who are associated with psychiatry and psychotherapy, sort of define mindfulness as a non-judgmental awareness of things as they arise immediately. And also being aware of of being in the present moment. When I was a young 
when I was still a student in university, it was way back in the early, in the mid-70s, I was introduced to Zen, Chan Buddhism, through one of my friends and read a book about it. And I was very impressed and inspired by Zen. I had been an intellectual until that time. I was always seeking answers by intellectual reasoning, by reading philosophy and psychology. But Zen was a new way of looking at things. It's a way of going beyond the intellect. So I found that this is quite an interesting path and I wanted to actually become a Zen monk at the time. However, I couldn't speak Japanese, I couldn't speak Chinese, and there were no English-speaking Zen teachers around in Malaysia or in Penang. So I just looked around and somebody introduced me to Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center where they were teaching this Mahasi method. So I read one of those books there written by Mahasi Sadaw himself about the practice of Vipassana meditation. As I read it, I thought, hey, that's very similar to Zen. But it's just that it is explained in a very systematic way. In Zen, when I read the books about Zen at that time, and there were very few books on Zen at that time, in the early 70s, in English, and what I can understand is that Zen is beyond words. Once you write anything about Zen, it's not Zen. So how are you going to practice Zen? So he says, when you walk, just walk. When you sit, just sit. So yeah, I tried to do that, but I don't know actually how to do it. <laughs> I like to go bicycling. So I was cycling and he say, when you cycle, just cycle. Yeah, I'm cycling. Yeah, so... <laughs> so, it took me many years. I can't really figure out what is meant by this. And later on, when I was introduced to Mahasi meditation, I tried that method. Still, I don't really understand what is present moment awareness. But I'll come back to that later. Mindfulness nowadays is understood popularly as present moment awareness. And as I said, that is only one part of mindfulness from the Buddhist context. In the Buddhist context, I made a research through the suttas as well as through my interviews with yogis, as well as my own practice. And I found out that there are actually four aspects of mindfulness that are very useful for not only spiritual practice, but for worldly application as well. I call these the four R's. Now, actually mindfulness, as I said just now, is the noun of the verb sarati, to remember, so actually it should be remembrance. What does the word remembrance connote to you? You remember something of the past, correct? So how can you reconcile that with present moment awareness? Now there seems to be something amiss there, some contradiction. So this puzzled me for many years until I made the research and I found out that The fourth R of mindfulness is actually so-called present moment awareness. Let me go through the other R's first. So, sati is awareness of a past object. Because to remember means to remember something of the past. 
And the word awareness is sometimes also used as a synonym for mindfulness, which I find is too general, because awareness is a very general term. It means simply aware of things. It doesn't matter whether you're aware of the past or present or future. So mindfulness is a special sort of awareness. It's only awareness of the past, not of the present, not of the future. Awareness, but awareness of the past. These are the four hours of mindfulness. The first one is to remember. Like for example, now you're all listening to me and I'm explaining things to you. So if you don't make a point, a deliberate effort to remember what I tell you now, when you get out of this hall and somebody asks you, uh, I missed today's talk, what's the talk about? Do you think you will be able to relate what the talk is about? If you have not made an effort to actually remember it, and not to say write notes, if you don't write notes and just mentally you don't even make an effort to remember it, I'm sure when you get out of this hall, you will not be able to recollect what I said. Correct? So, the first one is to remember while you are listening to instructions or listening to teachings. Make a point to remember. Another great example is, and I know that many of you are probably very dedicated to chanting. Yeah, you chant uh, every evening or once a week or so, and you have your own chanting book, right now. And you may have been chanting for donkey years. But if you had not made an effort to memorize those chants, and you close your book, you think you can chant? Cannot. So, mindfulness requires a deliberate effort. It is not something spontaneous. You have to make an effort to remember. That is mindfulness. On the other hand, we have spontaneous memory. You look at somebody, immediately you recognize that person. You have seen that person before. Yeah, You eat some food, you eat something, and then immediately you know what it is. You don't have to think about it. Now, this is spontaneous memory. This comes under sanya or perception in the five aggregates. Mindfulness is also memory, but it is deliberate memory. It's not spontaneous memory. However, when you use mindfulness again and again, then it will become sanya or spontaneous memory. A very good example is when you are learning a new language. When you learn a new language, you have to make sure that you remember what the characters stand for, and how to articulate your tongue and your voice box to produce that particular sound. Correct not? Initially, you need a lot of effort to willfully, deliberately memorize and pronounce those words. However, when you become skilled in it, yeah, it's automatic. You don't have to have any effort in it. So it's the same. In mindfulness, initially, you put in a lot of effort. But if you do it for a long time, Continuously, then it will become sanya. It becomes automatic. Right? So that's why it's very important to have continuity of practice. Okay, the second is called recollect. Recollect can only happen if you remember what you heard or what you read. And these are all what students are supposed to do. Students are supposed to read their textbooks and then memorize all the points, and then when they go and sit for exams, 
They're supposed to recollect everything and then write it out. Correct. So this is the second R, to recollect what you have remembered. And the third R is to remind. You may be a fantastic Buddhist scholar, you may have written a lot of theses, a lot of articles in peer-reviewed journals, but if you do not remind yourself to put those principles of Buddhism into practice, also won't give you much benefit. So this one is reminding yourself to put into practice. So now I'm telling you about what is mindfulness, and maybe later I'll tell you how to practice mindfulness, uh, and you know it, you understand it, yeah, maybe you have a good memory, you remember, you can recollect it, but then you don't remind yourself to practice, then you won't get much benefit either. And finally, we have retrospect. Now I'm using the word retrospect in a very literal sense. Retro means back, and spect means look, to look back. Look back at what had just happened at your senses. You could be looking back at how your mind is reacting to a particular situation, how your mind is processing a thought, an emotion, a sense stimuli. That is looking back. So these are the four aspects of mindfulness. Remember, recollect, remind and retrospect. And retrospect is the one that is equivalent to so-called present moment awareness. This will become clearer in the next few slides. So here, to summarize, mindfulness are the four R's. Remember, recollect, remind, and retrospect. Okay, now to make you understand why the last R of mindfulness, retrospect, is equivalent to present moment awareness. You need to understand the 561 features of the six senses. Yeah, the 5 here refers to the 5 senses. The 6 here refers to the 6th sense, which is the mind. And 1 here refers to the object of the mind, of the 6th sense. Now the 5 senses can only take present objects. You can only be aware or conscious of something that is happening right now before your eyes can see, your ears hear, your nose smell, your tongue taste, and your body feel. The video that you saw last night, if it's not turned on now, your eyes will not be able to see it. Correct? Nor you, will you be able to hear uh, whatever music you heard last night, if it is not turned on right now. Correct? So, the five senses can only take present objects. They must be in the present, in the here and now. And not only that, the five senses are very specialized. Each sense can only know its respective object. The eye can only see colors, cannot hear, cannot smell, cannot taste, cannot feel sensations. So it's the same for all of them. Each one has its own specific object. The mind, however, the sixth sense, is very special. The mind can take all the objects of the five senses. And the objects can be in the past, can be in the present, can be in the future. For most people, the mind cannot perceive objects of the future. You think that you're thinking about the future, but actually 
you are just making projections of what might happen in the future based on your past experiences. Great or not? Unless you are a clairvoyant. Unless you have this sixth sense called ESP, extrasensory perception. There are some people who have premonitions, they can know what will happen in the future. Now, these are the people whose mind can really take an object of the future. I like to tell this story, this real account of one of my yogis. When I was conducting a mindful hiking retreat in Singapore, it was a couple of years ago, we were walking in one of the parks, and there's one section of the park whereby we had to cross a marshy area. There was a log on it, slippery log on it, that you have to walk across if you don't want to get wet. So we were all going through that. And one of the yogis, she's a very experienced hiker, so she's always at the back taking care of people. And so she was right at the back there. And there was one lady hiker, she's not very experienced, and so she was going on to the log, walking along the log. And this experienced hiker, oh, knew beforehand that she was going to slip and fall into the marsh. So she got her handphone ready and took a video. <laughs> and she also has experienced in the past that her premonitions, when you see them, you cannot tell the other person. You tell the person also useless, she will fall anyway. <laughs> you cannot tell anyway if something is going to happen, it's going to be stated. Uh, so these are the people who can perceive the future, really perceive the future through their minds. That's the faculty of the mind. The mind has this power of being able to take objects of the past, present, future, as well as beyond time. Uh, the mind can also be percipient or be conscious of Nibbana, the unconditioned element, and other things beyond the five senses. Okay? However, even though the mind is so powerful, the mind can know objects of the past, present, and future, can know all the five sense objects, and beyond that, it, for normal people, the mind can only take one object at a time. I'm talking about normal people. For yogis, Indian yogis or Buddhist practitioners who are very adept, they can reach a stage where they can perceive many things happening at the same time. Okay, when we know about this 561 principle, how can it help us in the practice of mindfulness? How can it help us to compose the mind? The mind, the sixth sense, is the one that is always giving us trouble, isn't it? Why are we anxious? Why are we worried? Why are we upset? It's not because of the five senses. The five senses are actually dum-dum. They just receive stimuli, bad stimuli. It's just like your computer and key and all those things. It is one and zero. One zero, one zero, different combinations of one zero. <laughs> the five senses the same, whatever comes in, they just accept. And uh, modern biologists have really verified that actually your body, comprising the five senses, are being bombarded with stimulants, stimulation all the time, 
all your senses are actually being activated, but your mind does not know. But your mind only knows one thing at a time, although it's very fast. I'll give you a very good example. For example, your body consciousness. Your body consciousness is not just confined to the skin, but internally as well. And it's really very intelligent. Why? Because body consciousness can recognize what sort of food you eat, whether it's protein or carbohydrates. Yeah, and then once it recognizes the sort of food you eat, then it can tell the glands to produce certain enzyme. Correct? Does your mind know anything about this? Nothing. <laughs> Alright? And then when bacteria enters your body, the body consciousness is very smart. You can recognize, oh, this guy came in before, and then he knows what antibody to produce. Correct? At what rate? Every little detail the, the body can do. And the body is such a super intelligent device, you could say. <laughs> and nothing in the world, even though our computers are now so sophisticated, even though you have artificial intelligence, no one can make a human being as it is. Okay, so the mind can only take one object at a time. Because of this, if you anchor your mind to the five senses, and the five senses can only take present objects, correct or not? So the moment you see something, hear something, smell something, taste something, feel something with the body, you just anchor yourself there, then the mind would be in the so-called present. But it's not real present, it's immediate past. Because your ear hears first, and then the mind is right behind, noticing the hearing. Your body feels the pain first, and then only the mind is aware of the pain. So it's actually right behind. But conventional language, you say, is a present. That's why people say present moment awareness. So why is present moment awareness now so effective and making people all over the world accept mindfulness as part of their practice? It's because when the mind is fixed in the present moment, so-called present, it's got no time to think of the past or the future. And it is the past and the future that is making you suffer. Yeah, All your resentment about the past, all your misgivings, all your regrets, remorse, all your concerns about what might happen in the future based on your past experiences, all these are in the mind. So if you don't want to be made to suffer by this culprit, all you need to do is to disengage it from compulsive thinking and anchor it to the five senses. And this can be done anytime, anywhere. You don't have to shut yourself in an aircon room and then close your eyes, sit cross-legged and watch your breath. No. I mean, that's also one way of practicing. That's also one way of stilling your mind. But that's something very limited in scope because you can only do it when you are not disturbed. But when you practice, when you are trying to come back to your five senses, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, that helps to compose your mind. Yeah? Because your mind is not thinking of anything else, it is stuck in the present moment. So, that's one way of composing your mind. What I call dynamic serenity. Even though there are many objects happening in your senses, if you just keep it the senses and you don't proliferate on what you see, smell, taste, hear, 
or feel with the body, you just touch and go, no, touch and go, touch and go, then your mind will automatically become composed. But you need mindfulness for that. You need to remember how to do it. You need to remind yourself every time your mind runs off, you have to say, okay, come back, come back, come back to the present moment, be aware of what you are doing. So that's why you need mindfulness. So once you have this mindfulness and your mind becomes composed, then you begin to understand more about yourself, how your thoughts arise, what motivates you to do certain things. Are you doing something because you are really interested? Or are you doing it because somebody sort of wants you to do it? You're trying to please somebody? Are you doing something in order to fulfill certain obligations? So that's how you can have a more understanding of yourself, why you are doing certain things. But you can only do that when your mind is calm and composed and you can look back in your thoughts. Now, another important thing that we also need to bear in mind is having the right view. Because when you're talking about the Noble Eightfold Path, I'm sure all of you as Buddhists would know what the Noble Eightfold Path is. It starts off with right view, correct? If you don't have the right view, you start off with wrong view, everything else will be wrong. You'll go to wrong thought, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong samadhi. So you have to start off with the right view. There are two types of right view, basically. One is a mundane sort of right view, where you believe in the law of karma, you believe that if you do good, then you will get good, you do bad things, then you will get bad results. So, because of that belief, that will help to influence your good thoughts, your speech, your action, your livelihood. There's another type of right view. You could say it's supramundane. It's not just worldly, it's otherworldly. That sort of right view is meant to liberate you from samsara. The mundane right view, believing in the law of karma, doing good, these are for you to wander in samsara and fare well in samsara so that you um, live comfortably in samsara. The other sort of right view is to get out of samsara. Two different sort of right views. The second sort of right view is connected with the law of cause and effect. And there are three types of laws of cause and effects. One is the law of karma, which overlaps with the one in the mundane right view. And the other one is the law of physical cause and effect, which is the realm or domain of scientists. Yeah? Science is all about cause and effect, physical cause and effect. And then the third one is the law of cause and effect related to the mind and the body. Mind-body law of cause and effect. Nowadays, this is gaining popularity among scientific research. Now, in many universities, people are doing research into what we call mind science, how your mind mental states will affect your brain, your neurons, how they fire, will affect your body, 
your glands, uh, and so forth. So people are now making a lot of research to see how the mind and the body uh, interact or relate with one another. They are using this science, is always dependent on external instruments to measure and calibrate things. But all these things were already known by the Buddha more than 2,500 years ago. And yogis don't need all those so-called sophisticated instruments. They are actually very crude when you compare to the mind. The mind is more sophisticated. All you need to do is to practice mindfulness and composure and you will be able to see how the mind and the body relate with one another. Every mental state you have, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, would stimulate your body to produce certain biochemicals. If it's an unwholesome state of mind, it will produce these biochemicals, so-called neuropeptides, that will make you feel miserable. You get sourish feeling in your stomach, like indigestion, you have palpitation in the heart, breathing fast, and you are all heated all over. This is due to the mind affecting the body. And once the mind affects the body, it's like using an electrical hot plate. But even though you switch off the hot plate, the hot plate doesn't become cool immediately. It will take some time for you to cool down. So it's the same. Even though you stop being angry, but because the anger has already triggered off the production of these biochemicals, the biochemicals are still in the body, and you have to feel this discomfort for some time before the, the old ones fade away and new ones are not being produced. If you don't understand this, and you try to push away the anger, you don't like the sensations that are produced by unwholesome mental states. Not liking is also another unwholesome mental state. So if you don't like and you try to push it away, then you make things worse. Then things will get worse. That's why people with depression, people with chronic anxiety syndrome and all that, they cannot get out of it because they are going around in circles. Yeah. So the only way you can get out of it is to practice mindfulness and step out, not to go in. Okay, so when you practice mindfulness, you understand this 5-6-1 principle. So whenever you can, whatever you're doing, not necessarily only when you come for a meditation retreat, you just try to be aware of your senses. For example, right now, you're sitting there listening to me. Can't you be aware of your body? You can be aware of your body being seated, right? As a whole, you can be aware of your buttocks in contact with the seat that you're sitting on, your feet in contact with the floor if you're sitting on the chair. Yeah, you can feel your skin in contact with the air, with your clothing. You can hear other sounds besides my voice. Yeah, there are many things that are happening. There's no excuse that you cannot, there's no object that is not clear enough. Some people, they say they cannot find the rising and falling. Some people say the breath becomes too subtle, cannot find. But when you're talking about five senses, it's impossible for you not to find one. Unless you're dead. <laughs> so, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you just make it a point to come back to the senses. That will automatically make you more composed. Otherwise, if you don't do that, 
your mind will be in auto mode, always living up in your head. Even you are walking along the street, you are not being in the present. You are thinking of your problems in the past and what's going to happen in the future and things like that. So, when you try to practice mindfulness and try to come back to the present moment, to whatever you are doing right now, that helps you compose your mind and then you have a better choice of whether you want to think a thought or not. When you make it a habit to be aware of the present circumstances of uh, what is happening in the present moment with your senses, then the moment the mind is not aware, then you will know. The moment is not aware of the senses, you will know that the mind is doing something. What is it doing? Thinking. And so when you catch that, then you have the chance to process. Oh, this is a thought that has a reason. Shall I pursue this thought or not? Then you have a choice. You can see, oh, this is not beneficial, it's not appropriate, not relevant to me, it's not realistic, it's not factual, so no point thinking about it. So you just put it aside and then come back to your present moment. So you cut down all those unproductive idle thoughts and comments. You only pursue those thoughts that are useful and productive. You have a choice. For most people, because they cannot catch this first initial thinking, they already get caught up in their thoughts. And then they don't know what they are doing. They are always caught up in their thoughts. So the first step in wanting to live a meaningful life is to practice mindfulness. You have a mindful life, you practice mindfulness, then you understand your thoughts, your emotions, your motivations, why you want to do things. Now, of course, we have to balance ourselves. Now, some people, they become very serious in practice. They practice vipassana, they begin to see things all in terms of impermanence, suffering, not-self, all due to cause and conditioning, and they find that everything is empty, they want to renounce, become a monk or nun, and meditate for the rest of their lives. However, you might have come to that realization a bit too late. Yeah, You already got a family, you got children, young children, who needs to be supported. So, you have to come back to your worldly obligations, you have to recourse to loving kindness and compassion. So you have to still fulfill your worldly obligations that you had already started in your ignorance. Yeah. What to do? <laughs> you have not had enough spiritual maturity. That's it, you're caught in it and then you you cannot run away once you started it. You have to see it to the end. Hopefully you will get to a point where you are still healthy mentally and physically when your children are grown up and you can dedicate your time to practice. But having said that, it's not impossible to practice even though you have your family obligations to fulfill. Yeah, People have this misconception that meditation means coming to a retreat and being in isolation. Not necessarily. You can actually make use of what I teach here, open awareness, going back to your daily life, try as best as possible to come back to the present moment as often as you can, and then when your mind is composed, then you look into yourself, look at your thoughts, your feelings, your perceptions, your motivations, why you are doing things, what are your preferences, what would you prefer to do other than what you are doing. And when your mind becomes clear, 
then you can make better decisions. And this is what I've been teaching the yogis in this workshop also, to make use of intuitive wisdom to resolve the issues rather than simply using your intellect. So when you have a problem like wanting to find out the meaning of life, what I should do in life that is more fulfilling than the what I'm doing right now, then you should practice mindfulness. Compose yourself, look into yourself, look at what you really are, who you really are, what are your talents, what are your preferences. Because not everybody is the same. So you have to look at yourself to understand your past conditioning, your talents, your inclinations, your interests, and to see your capabilities and whether you could do something more meaningful and fulfilling in life now that you know your so-called true self, true self in inverted commas, in a sense that Buddhism talks about not-self, not-self in the sense that there is no permanent unchanging entity, but it does not deny that there are personalities. There is no such thing as an unchanging permanent entity, but there are all different personalities. We are all different personalities. We are all similar in the sense that we are all products of causes and conditions. And yet, we are all different because we all come from different conditioning. I'll give you a very good example. Now, there was this last year when I was conducting my hiking retreat in Kuching, in one of the parks in Kuching. So one early morning we were walking to the forest and it was very misty walking to the forest and it was very misty and so there were two participants. All of us were presented with the same circumstances. We were walking through a misty forest forest path. Both of them, and one said he didn't like it, he felt very scary. And I asked him, why? He said, because he had watched all those ghost movies. And when you ghost movies, they all come out in the mist. <laughs> so he felt scared. And he didn't like that walk. On the other hand, there was another girl, she said, oh, she loved that. It was so nice and beautiful. She felt so happy. And I said, why? Oh, because she used to watch this Disneyland sort of stuff. Huh? <laughs> you see all these misty things, you got fairies uh, coming out from there. <laughs> so, we are presented with the same circumstances and you react differently. Why? Because our past conditioning are different. <laughs> so, although we are all the same, we are also all different. So, if you really can understand that within yourself, you keep on watching your own mind the whole day, coming back to the senses, and then you can catch your mind. And when your mind is really composed, then you begin to see cause and conditioning. Why do these thoughts arise? Why is there such a reaction? Why is there such a response? You know? Then you need to have this right view. Mind, body, law, of cause and effect. That there's no one there. It's all due to cause and conditioning. So whenever you are already mindful, you can see your thoughts and emotions and feelings and perceptions arise, you try to find out the cause and conditioning. Why? Why do I react in such a way? That's because of your upbringing. There was one time when I was teaching a Buddhist retreat in Manautama, and there was one lady who said she didn't know how to wash her mind. So I said, okay, when you were... Having lunch, after your lunch, 
you tell me what happens. So after lunch, they were supposed to take their plates to go and wash at the wash basin. So she said, I took my plate and went there to wash. And then I saw another lady yogi washing her plate. And then the mind started to comment. That's not doing right. That's not the right way. Then I said, yeah, you're beginning to wash your mind. You know what your mind is thinking, right? So I asked her, why do you say she's not doing it right? Then she said, you should do like that. See where do you learn it from? Ah, see, because your mother taught you that way. Her mother taught her another way. So, you don't go around judging people by your own standards. Because all of us come from different backgrounds. We have different ways of doing things. So, when you work in a religious organization, a voluntary organization, the kitchen is one of the most sensitive parts. Because all the volunteers there uh, have their own ways of doing things, of cutting vegetables, of cooking. <laughs> so uh, unless you are able to give and take, that's going to be a big problem. <laughs> okay, so that's what the importance of mindfulness is. If you want to really know how to lead a meaningful life, what is meaningful to you, how can you do things which are more fulfilling in life, you practice mindfulness understand more about yourself and then you can decide whether you want to do things the way you have been doing or you want to change into something more fulfilling. Alright? So, let me stop here for a while. Any questions before I continue? Bhante, about the 561, actually the one that you are talking about, mind can only take one object at a time but I realize that our mind is multitasked. While I'm talking to you, I, I can yeah, see, yeah. I can hear, yeah, yeah. I can feel the easiness yeah, 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 in my yeah. body. Yeah. So I don't really understand why is it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. That's because the mind works so fast. You think that it's simultaneous. But actually, neuroscientists, they have made an experiment. They have wired the brains of their subjects and then they put them to a multitasking job. And then they monitor what's going on in the brains. Actually, when they think they are multitasking, they are not really doing multitasking. One part of the brain is stimulated at one time when they are doing another different task. But the speed is too fast. It's so fast you think it's going very fast. So that's why I say, for normal people actually it's only one thing at a time. But normal people also don't realize that. They think that everything is happening at the same time. But when you become a yogi, then your mind becomes more composed, then you know that it will come only one thing at a time. But then as you go even deeper, you become even more skillful, then you are able to see many things happening at the same time. So that's why I did Zen saying, you know, before I practice, the hills look like hills, and then the clouds look like clouds. But then when I practice, the hills don't look like hills, the clouds don't look like clouds anymore. But then after you complete practice, yeah, they look like hills, the hills again, the clouds look like clouds again. <laughs> okay. Right. Anyone else? Yeah, someone here? So the myth that ladies can multitask and men cannot is not true. <laughs> ladies have a better propensity for multitasking than men because of the brains, according to the scientists. 
right? Bhante, if you can expand a bit more about no, what are the meaning are we to find more meaningful and fulfilling in life, right? We should apply our intuitive wisdom rather than no, our intellect. Can you expand a bit more? Because we read a lot of Dharma books and all we tend to follow what we read and all this. So I think this is good for us to give a better clarity. When we try to resolve problems and we do so intellectually, we are limited by what our intellects can perceive and uh, remember from our past conditioning. The conscious mind is limits. Whereas there's what we call another segment of the mind that's called the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind knows things in greater detail. But it cannot work because the conscious mind is too powerful. It overrides it. It's too clever. Okay, so what we do, um, if you really want to tap your subconscious to get wise decisions, then you have to shift your priority from using the intellect to using your intuition. So you try to avoid using the intellect to solve problems or issues if those issues are not something that are urgent and needs to be resolved within a certain deadline. If it's a long-standing issue, like for example, the meaning of life, is something which you don't really have a deadline for it. I mean, the deadline is your, your death. Lah. <laughs> it's really a deadline. It's a deadline. But I mean, it's not that really urgent. So you could pose the question, I want to lead a more meaningful life. How can I go about doing that? Then you just ask the question. You don't think about it. Then you practice open awareness. You come back to your senses as often as you can. And if this question really matters, it will pop up again and again. And every time it pops up, you just want to know the answer, but you don't think about it and put it aside. And you just come back to your senses. Because the mind has already been inclined to want to know the answer, actually the subconscious is doing its work. The subconscious is gathering more and more data. As you are mindful more and more of yourself, you understand more and more and more and more of yourself, your motivations, your inclinations through the practice of mindfulness, then the subconscious is gathering all those data and then one fine day it will give you the answer. That's how it works. But however, having said that, there are certain things that are urgent. You need to urgently come up with a decision. And it's not possible for us to always be so exact and wait for all the facts to be complete before we make a decision. Many of our decisions are based on assumptions. So, the best thing to do if you really want to make a very important decision is not to do so when your mind is troubled, dissipated, distracted. Don't do that. When you are emotionally troubled, that is the worst time to make any decisions. You have to settle your mind first, still the mind, compose the mind, many ways of doing it. You can lock yourself in the room and do your anapana or do your rising and falling if you can. If not, you know, a very simple way is you go work out in the gym. Yeah, you work out in the gym so you are actually being in the present moment. When you come out of it, you are fresh because you are not thinking of the past or the future. 
Or you go and take walk in a park and practice open awareness, uh, take a swim, um, bicycle, cycling around. Any of these physical activities that will help you to come to the present moment. That is good enough actually to compose your mind. Or even when you are cycling around at that time, you are with the moment and yet you can still have this thought of wanting to resolve that problem, want to make a decision. But you don't think about it actively, you just put it in the background and you do your thing. And then when your mind is more composed, it's urgent, you need to make a decision, but at the end of the day, your intuition hasn't arisen yet. <laughs> so, at that time, your mind is calm and composed, you can start to use your intellect to solve the problem. Okay? When you want to make a decision, okay, you are basing it on assumptions. And you have to tell yourself, alright, these are assumptions. And these assumptions may or may not be accurate, may or not be correct. Not sure. But I still have to make a decision based on these assumptions. Alright? So, when you make a decision based on these assumptions, then you all should also be prepared to change or modify your course when these assumptions are updated, when they are proven wrong or more accurate assumptions come into the picture then you must be prepared to change course or modify the course of the action. This is very important because some people, they tend to be very egoistic because this is a decision I made, my decision. You, know, you tend to stick to it irrespective of whether those assumptions were correct or not. So if you start off being humble, start off with uncertainty. I'm not sure, but I have to do it, so I make my decision now. Later on, when the facts become more solid, and then I will change my course. So with this preparation, then it's easier for you to change. Right? If not, you'll be sticking to your idea. It's my idea cannot change. I say, no, bobin. Right. <laughs> okay, so I hope it helps. But don't try to rush things Take it slowly. Any more questions? Good morning, Bhante. According to the chart again, 561, you say that normal people will only take one thing at a time. So through practice, is it our goal for normal people to see multiple things at one time? Is that our goal? Your goal is actually to understand things as they really are in terms of nicha, dukkha, anatta, of impermanence, suffering and not-self, especially not-self, due to cause and conditioning. That is your goal. Yeah? Whether or not you see many things at once, that's not the goal. That's a byproduct. That may be helpful sometimes, but not necessary. Okay, anyone else? Good morning. So, I was looking at your previous four hours, right? Remembering, recollection, remind, and retrospect. So I, I believe that that's a function of the past, right? How does it go in line with the present awareness? Like those actions, I think, like retrospect, recollecting, are like a function of the past because you're remembering the past. While you're saying like present awareness, you must always be in the present. So how do you bridge that together? No, I said actually retrospect is uh, closest to that. Retrospect means to look back immediately at what that happened. And I said also that your five senses can only take present objects. You hear something first, and then only the mind looks back at it. 
you have a thought that rises in you, and then you look back at it. You are angry, and then you look back at it. So, actually, this is so-called present, but it is the immediate past. Yeah, so, it's still linked to the past. Huh? Yeah, it's still linked to the past. Actually, only your senses, the five senses, can take present object. When you are mindful of what is happening in the senses, it's really a past object. It's immediate past. So, that's why I say, retrospect is just one aspect of mindfulness, but it is still the immediate past. Although the conventional language you say in the present moment. Thank you. The Buddha was very specific. He went to a very micro level. Mindfulness is actually, although he says it's present, it's not really in the present, it's an immediate past. Okay, anyone else? Good morning, Bhante. So, expounding on what you shared earlier, for decision making, so it can be something like, maybe I've sat with it for a while, and then we have a general direction instead of a very specific, if let's say it's a big decision, it's more of a direction and you're open to things as they change as they are. But let's say you are in a particular situation or there's a loved one that you care about and they throw you off and you know, you'll start to have doubt. Doubt comes up about originally you think, okay, this is the direction, but because of situation or whatever has happened, the doubt arises as well. So, is it that we just go back to things that bring us back to everyday mindfulness and, you know, uh, let it continue to happen? Because some of these decisions or direction takes time. It's not an immediate sort of yes or no kind of thing. Or what would be the best way to, when such doubts arise or such uh, emotional or, or difficult conditions, situations happen? Is it just to come back to everyday mindfulness and continue to be observant and let it pass and see what comes up? Or is there some way to reset or know or just be more comfortable with the uncertainty? Actually, I said it depends on on the urgency. If you don't have a deadline, deadline is not that important, then what you can do is resort to your daily mindfulness, come back to it, with that question at the back of your mind. How am I going to resolve this problem? The question is still there. You still want to resolve the problem, but you wait for the subconscious to gather enough data in order to give you a comprehensive answer. Unless, as I said, it's really urgent, and then you have to make use of your intellect. But make sure that your mind is composed first. Thanks. Anyone else? Good morning. My question is, when we talking about all this mindfulness interchange within our mind, so our mind will be working to the past, the future, the present, and so on. My question is, how are we able to control sometimes our mind, whether to be able to think this or to stop this? How is, is there a mechanism to do it, to control this process in our mind, whether it's subconscious, conscious, and so on? Thank you. Very simple. You just practice mindfulness. Yeah, because you haven't started on it, you think it's difficult. If you train, the mind needs to be trained. You've already trained your mind to live up in your head all the time. You're thinking all the time, non-stop. Then it can't be helped. Now. You have to train the mind, retrain the mind, or so-called reformat your hard disk up here, to pay more attention to the present. 
what is happening at the present moment. Come back to your senses. For example, now you are sitting there and listening to me. You can still be aware of your body, can't you? Be aware of the sense of being seated. Be aware of the body, feeling the aircon or the contact of your clothing. Now, these are the things that you can be aware of. They help to ground you. Right? So, it doesn't have to be done in a static way. Whatever you're doing, you're driving, you're walking, you are cleaning up your house, whatever you're doing, you can still come back to the present moment. When you make that a habit, then the mind will not be so uncontrollable because it is stuck to the present moment and then if it's not with the present moment, it's thinking of something else and then it gives you the space to be able to catch it and process it whether it's worth pursuing or not. Right? So you have to practice in order to so-called control your mind. Anyone else? Bhante, when our body undergoes this decay at the moment of death, where our mind will go? Where your mind will go? Oh, at the moment of death. Yeah, you should wait for my workshop next year. How to die a good death. <laughs> oh, you're jumping the gun, you know, I feel so fast. Press, yes. I'm not mistaken, we go back to our practice at the moment of death. We go back to our daily practice. We direct our mind. He's talking about what happens to the mind after we pass away. <laughs> You're talking about what do we do before you pass away. <laughs> to the regressions. Is that correct? Yeah. At the, before we pass away, we direct our mind back to our practice. Yeah, 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 of course. The mind is a product of training. If you train your mind to do that in your daily life, and you're very continuous about it, when you're about to pass away, you will ultimately go to that mode when it becomes like a first nature or a second nature to you. On the other hand, if you have not done it before, and at your deathbed somebody asks you to practice mindfulness, you're not going to do it. <laughs> Just like... You want to cross the river, across the sea, or in a sampan, and then you learn to swim only when a sampan capsizes. Can or not? Cannot. You, know, you have to train yourself first. Then when you get there, automatically the mind will get there. Will go there. So, training is very important. You have to make it a habit. Make it into first nature or even second nature. So, better come and learn to swim first. <laughs> okay, one question at the back. Bhante, nowadays, you see the young people, and even a lot of people is, uh, like the, the handphone. So young people now say they play the game and edited to the game. Do you think they can be, when they go to the mindfulness practice, is it easy to go to the concentrations and mindfulness? I think it's a very hard way. Let's say they want to start to mindfulness uh, practice. Do you think it's uh, um, easier for them? Good question. Young people should join my youth mindful hiking retreat. That's good. Yeah, it's very active and they keep their minds busy and they have to surrender their handphones. 
<laughs> yeah, they really a lot of young people find it very, very enjoyable and very useful. That's actually the best way to introduce mindfulness to people, not necessarily who are young, who are fit and young at heart. Whether you're old or not, doesn't matter. As long as you're fit and young at heart, you do the mindful hiking. You cannot help but be mindful when you hike. Great, not? You are going up a slippery slope with no proper footing. Then got leeches. Yeah, slippery. Got thorns. You are not mindful. You had it. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? Bante. Just now, Bante shared a story about someone can see the future, like the story in the hiking lady. How to explain from Dharma? It sounds like against the law of interdependence. A law of interdependence? Uh, because it's, uh, something is already the future. Oh, 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 oh I see, I see. Hey, thanks. Okay, that's because in our present level of consciousness, we tend to look at things in a linear way. Yeah? But mystics and meditators say that actually the past, the present, and the future are all happening at the same time. You only think that it's linear because of the way our brains are wired. But if you go beyond the five senses, I don't know how to say like, oh, it's a meditative yogis who can do that. They can see past, present, and future all happening at the same time. That's why you see some Indian yogis, they can appear in several places at the same time. Yeah. Because they have the psychic ability to do so. They train their minds to do so. So it's all a matter of training. We are all limited by our five senses right now. We have not gone beyond the five senses. And our five senses can only know things in a linear way. Right? So we are conditioned to think in a linear way. Just as we think of only life and death. We don't know if there's anything in between or beyond. Yeah? You only see things in terms of black and white. You don't see various shades in between. So that's a problem. So we cannot use our normal human intellect to explain things which are beyond the senses and the intellect. Okay? Yeah, somebody here in front. Bante, relating to games, I would like to ask a question. The, I mean, the new generation, they are always playing games. And when you tell them, don't play too much games. I mean, you, computer games. Yeah, computer games, you know, the PS4 and everything like that. They will tell you, Ma, scientists say it's good for the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they will say, it's my way of distressing. So when I play, I don't think about my problems. And like you said, it comes back to the five senses. So I'm very confused now whether game is good or not good for our practice. Yeah. It's not good because you get addicted to it. Addiction, yeah, because of the excitement you get, you know. Although it helps to distress now. But mindfulness is also a way of distressing. Right? It's a matter of taking your attention away from all those thoughts about the past or the future. It's just that they do it in a way that is unwholesome. Actually, this idea of this 561 is sort of, most people already know about this. That's why when people are in trouble, they don't want to think about a particular problem. What do they do? They drink until they get drunk. They go and play mahjong. They eat until they get full or they do work until they forget everything. Because you're trying to distract their attention from what the mind is obsessed with. 
it's the same principle. It's just that they are doing it the wrong way. <laughs> they are doing it unwholesome. Yeah, but we are doing it in a wholesome way. Yeah, we come back to the senses and looking at things in terms of impermanence, not self, and suffering. So, unfortunately, that's what's happening to the world now because technology has changed. Yeah, but very interestingly, when I was in Singapore, I met one designer. And when he was in polytechnic studying design, the students were asked to conduct a research about handphones, about young people and handphones. And he says, very interestingly, when they interviewed all these young people, they want to shut off their handphones at certain times of the day and to have more privacy for themselves. And they feel that they don't like handphones because their parents are always glued to the handphones and don't spend enough time with them. <laughs> so nowadays when you go, you see family outing, they go for dinner, everyone is looking at the handphones. <laughs> they're not having any meaningful relationship. They are just glued to their own handphones. I mean, this is the problem with society nowadays. But that's why in some families, some of the parents, they are more educated. They don't allow the children to have handphones. They only have handphones only for certain periods and they shut off. So I mean, as parents, you all need to be educated and need to know to put limits on how much your children get access to this. Or you will actually be very bad for their life and their health. Okay, anyone else? Good morning, Pante. So, with reference to Sister Eileen's question about playing games to de-stress, as an adult, we know that you know playing games or being stuck to the phone or iPad is not a very healthy option. So, can we actually do something else like listening to the radio or reading books to de-stress instead of just like you know free and easy touch and go? We like get involved in just one particular activity. For who? I mean, like for anybody, it can be for you know children. Oh, okay. okay. Children, well, I mean, unless you have something, an alternative which is more interesting for them, or they won't give up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, unless it's something interesting that they are interested in. Yeah, something more wholesome. But how about adults? Like, you know, I also see that most adults, they are actually also very glued to their phones or their iPads nowadays. Instead of being glued to their iPads or phones, um, can we actually, you know, divert the attention by reading books or listening to music, you know, instead of just, you know, looking at the phones? Because some people, I know that they like to play games or they just, you know, watch YouTube, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah, that also you know, it depends on whether you can convince that person to <laughs> change over or not. <laughs> it's a matter of interest, uh, something that catches their interest. Right? Or if you can find something else that is interesting to them and which is better than playing and watching YouTube and all that, that will be better. But you have to know what that person uh, is interested in. Good morning. Monday, I got a question. How do we use mindfulness or awareness to improve our emotional intelligence? Oh, very simple. The reason why our emotional intelligence is not good is because the mind was not composed. So the first thing you need to do is to compose your mind. And to compose your mind, you need mindfulness to remind yourself 
to come back to the present moment, being aware of what's happening at your senses. And so even if you have emotions, I didn't show up here, but you know, one of the other principles is it's called other anchor. Here, the A stands for to accept, to have the right attitude in your mind, to accept whatever happens as a product of causes and conditions. This is the right view. Now, whatever happens is the product of causes and conditions. So that includes your thoughts, your perceptions, your comments, your judgments, your emotions. All these things arise due to cause and conditions. Now, you accept this first. You accept this in a sense of because you are not well developed enough to verify or understand these causes and conditions. But you have the faith to accept this. Alright, so you could say this is a tentative acceptance to be verified later by yourself. So, A is to accept things as they arise. So when emotions arise in you, what you do is don't try to push it away. Don't follow it. Don't reject, don't follow. So what do you do? You... Abandon it. How do you abandon that? By not paying attention to it and paying attention to something else. So you can anchor your mind to one object or you can anchor your mind to the five senses. So when you do that, then your mind, as I said earlier, it becomes composed because you're not dwelling in those thoughts. You're not trying to fight with your emotions. You are just letting them go. Or you let them go by changing your subject to be attentive to something else. It's based on the 5-6-1 principle because if the mind is busy with present objects, then you won't have time to think of the past. And an emotion usually arises due to a past experience. You are thinking of something of the past. Something has already happened, you are not happy, things like that. So, by not feeding that emotion, through rejecting or following it and just dropping it and focusing on the five senses instead, uh, that will help to calm your mind. And earlier on, I also talked about the electric hot plate, remember? So, once the emotions has arisen, it's going to produce all those neuropeptides, uh, these biochemicals in the body, and it's going to make you feel heated up, heart will be pumping faster, you're breathing faster, other unpleasant sensations are happening in the body. Okay? So even though you do not reject or follow that emotion, you try to come back with your senses, these sensations will still linger for some time. So remember not to try to push them away you also got to accept those sensations. They are really there. They were caused by this emotion. Even though this emotion is no longer there, the sensations will linger on for some time before they dissipate. So you have to accept that also. Don't try to push that away. So in time, when you do that, the mind will come down. So when the mind comes down, then you will be able to see how emotions arise and how emotions are also products of causes and conditions, and usually they are based on certain expectations, especially if it's negative emotions. It's due to disappointment, being upset, because people don't follow your expectations. 
They expect people to say something, to do something, or not to do something, and they do otherwise, then you get upset. Yeah? That's the cause of suffering. So, how do you become more emotionally intelligent is by practicing mindfulness, then you can actually see the cause of these emotions, and you can resolve these emotions in an insightful way. Okay? Hope that answers your question. Anyone else? Good morning, Mante. Just now Mante mentioned about future, present, and the past. For those who got psychic power, you can see. I once met my friend who said he had seen her previous life. And he tell me the story, what happened in her previous life. My question is, do we really have our previous life? <laughs> You ask the question, if I say yes, what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? So, the book says yes, the book says we have previous time. Now you ask the question, if I say yes, what is that going to do to you? <laughs> it doesn't make any difference, right? <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. It's a matter of belief only. Whether you believe or you don't believe. Now, these are the things that you cannot really verify for yourself. Even though, like your friend, she says there's this vision that she was um, somebody in a past life, unless you can prove it that such a personality actually existed, it's just an impression. How do you know it's not just in the dream? How do you know it's not just imagination? You don't know. Unless you really have documented evidence to prove that there is such a personality. There are some cases like that. Children who could spontaneously remember their past lives now, these are documented. They have never been to a place before, but they can take their parents to the house where they stayed, and then they get there, they can recognize all the things that belong to them, <laughs> they can recognize their relatives. Uh, that is really documented. All right? But there are cases like that. So, you believe or not? <laughs> you still believe, right? That's what they say, right? <laughs> Okay. Okay, more, 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 more. Good morning, Bante. Relating to this diagram that you have shared in terms of how to anchor our mind and compose our mind, right? In a situation where people around you are emotional, what can we do or how can we help to what they got to support the person or try to help the person to compose their mind or to diffuse a situation, say, you know, in conflicts and, you know, how to... Is there any way that a third party or someone who is observing that someone having that emotional turmoil, you know, do something to help calm the person? Compose yourself first. <laughs> if you are composed, you know, that energy of being composed will also help that person to be composed. If you react, that will worsen the situation. Yeah, if you're composed and you can say things in a very composed way, then that person will listen. Right? So compose yourself. That will be very helpful. Okay? So, shall we share merits and then we go off? Alright, so now... Compose your minds and think of your departed 
teachers, relatives and friends and invite them to come and rejoice in the merits that we are about to share. We would also like to share our merits with our living relatives, teachers and friends, our guardian devas, the guardian devas of this temple, the guardian devas of this locality, the guardian devas of the sasana, the guardian devas of the world, other devas, spirits and all other beings. May they Rejoice in the sharing of merits and therefore be happy, well and peaceful. Let us now recite in Pali. Please recite after me. Idam me nyati nam ho tu Idam me nyati nam ho tu Sukhita hon tu nyatayo Sukhita hon tu nyatayo Idam no nyati nam ho tu Idam no nyati nam ho tu Sukhita hon tu nyatayo Sukhita hon tu nyatayo Idam vo nyati nam ho tu Idam vo nyati nam ho tu Sukhita hon tu nyatayo Sukita hon tu nyatayo May this be for my relatives May this be for my relatives Well and happy may the relatives be Happy be the relatives be May this be for our relatives. May this be for our relatives. Well and happy may the relatives be. Well and happy may the relatives be. May this be for you relatives. May this be for you relatives. Well and happy may the relatives be. Well and happy may the relatives be. Etta vata cha amhehi. Etta vata cha amhehi. Sampadam punya sampadam. Sampadam punya sampadam. Sappe satta numodandu. Sape satta numodantu Sape sampati setia Sape sampati setia To the extent that all of us To the extent of all of us Have accumulated a wealth of merits Have accumulated a wealth of merits in this may all beings rejoice. In this may all beings rejoice. For the attainment of all fortunes. For the attainment of all fortunes. Idang me punyam. Idang me punyam. Nibbanasa. Nibbanasa. Pachayo. Pachayo. Hotu. 
ขอตูเมดิสเมริตออฟไมน์เมดิสเมริตออฟไมน์เยอะคอสเซนคอนดิชั่นเยอะคอสเซนคอนดิชั่นฟอร์เดอะเทนเมนต์ออฟนิบาน